It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gittler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 31 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, September the 14th. First, I talk to Jason Lee, Expansion Director for Australia and New Zealand's NEM Foundation. The NEM Foundation is a not-for-profit organisation set up to promote the NEM blockchain technology and, in general, to promote, inform and educate on the benefits of utilising blockchain. And then I talked to economist Saul Eslake, looking at Australia's latest and better-than-expected GDP figures. Saul does not believe they're that great. But first, let's talk to Jason Lee. Jason Lee, tell us about the NEM Foundation. Wonderful. Thanks uh, for having me here, Leon. Um, The NEM Foundation, or what we simply call as the NEM blockchain, is a blockchain platform where companies can build on our blockchain protocol uh, as a very easy, out-of-the-box, plug-and-play solution. And the NAM blockchain, um, um, to talk about blockchain, is uh, represented by um, over 600 different uh, nodes or servers that record the transactions in real time. And it's uh, being used in over 40 countries in 100 cities across the world. And the uh, NEM Foundation is, is basically it's a not-for-profit, isn't it? That's right. So the NEM Foundation was incorporated out of Singapore as a non-for-profit to protect, promote and develop the NEM blockchain protocol. And so the protocol is uh, being run as a decentralised platform. But with the NEM Foundation, it's a centralised form of leadership where we have a governing council, a board of directors, as well as a, a global, regional and country management team. So we are considered one of the most active on-ground blockchain platforms in the world by far. So tell us about the platform itself. I mean, it, it has to be the two um, S words. It has to be scalable and yes. it has to be secure. That's right. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, and in fact, that's one of our um, highlights for the NAND blockchain. It, it's scalable. It can um, 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 be used for uh, multiple transactions very fast. In fact, we're also known for our speed to be able to uh, transact, so multiple transactions can go on us. And it's also very secure. Um, to date, we have not had any security issues um, or any concerns uh, that would affect the integrity of the NAM blockchain. In fact, um, a, a quick history as well. Back in uh, March 2015, when the NAM blockchain first started, a number of other blockchain platforms have started as well. 
and none have lasted until today. Very few have lasted until today, and NEM is among uh, one of those platforms. Well, it would be one of the world's first and probably the largest blockchain knowledge hub, wouldn't it? Uh, potentially. I mean, uh, <laughs> um, I, I definitely could do some research and, and put a flag down saying that, that we are active and we're working on it. Uh, but there are other protocols as well, and we find them as, as uh, good members of the ecosystem to help uh, provide the uh, awareness and education on blockchain for the industry as a whole. So which companies are working with you? Um, so companies that are using the NAM blockchain, we have uh, quite a large number of companies, in fact, up to 300 different use cases across the world. Um, here in Melbourne, we have been working with um, companies like uh, Travel by Bit, which uh, accepts uh, cryptocurrency to um, Australian dollar uh, payment processing. And they were behind uh, Brisbane Airport and their retailers accepting cryptocurrency and developing Australia's first digital currency town. That's here in Australia. And even all the way to Japan, where the Ministry of Agriculture has been developing a proof of concept with the Japan team on tracking of wild game meat in the supply chain. So a bit like your Kobe and Wahyu beef uh, being tracked on the NAM blockchain and multiple other countries. In fact, the Ukraine government just mentioned that they will be using their uh, the NAM blockchain protocol to explore uh, for the next general elections. That's fascinating. Yes. For the general elections. Yes, that's right. They've made a public statement um, stating that they will be looking at utilizing the blockchain uh, for the official vote for their national elections. Yes. Which will make it very safe and secure. That's right. So um, to those who, who are not familiar with blockchain, um, just think of the words safety, security, integrity, transparency. All these words are linked to what blockchain technology can do for the world. Uh, you, you do some work with Copyright Bank, don't you? Yes, that's right. So Copyright Bank is, is another project here, actually over here in Melbourne, where we are right now at the Blockchain Centre, where um, an intellectual property um, consultant and lawyer, um, David O, he had the idea of um, timestamping your digital work on the blockchain. Now, over 20 years ago, in order for you to protect your, your copyright work, um, you would actually be... Um, putting your copyright work in a letter and then sending it back to yourself and say that as of this date, um, I actually own the intellectual property ownership to uh, an image, a software, a lyric, a logo, and so on. Uh, today, right now, he's developed a platform which is live. You go to copyrightbank.com where you can upload your information and timestamp it on a blockchain and a certificate would be provided to you. Now, this certificate can actually be a legally defensible evidence uh, in the court of law. And we've actually seen cases in China and South Korea where the local courts have actually accepted um, documents or digital works timestamped on the blockchain as a legally enforceable evidence. Right, right, right. And mm. uh, there's another one, Rocket Shoes. Yes, uh, Rocket Shoes is a uh, blockchain-powered education uh, platform. It's uh, essentially uh, developed by uh, the Director for Entrepreneurship and Innovation in La Trobe University here in Australia. And he actually left his job, um, in fact, um, from being a tenured professor to run Rocket Shoes. And what Rocket Shoes essentially does is it allows um, educators and students to upload information on the blockchain and access it globally. Uh, in fact, a bit like a, a learning management system which can be accessed at a fraction of what they existingly pay with their cost and in a much more simpler way to access this information as well. So they are literally redefining the future of education and work, making it um, simple for educators and students to share information in, in universities and in edu the education sector. Well, potentially, this, this could transform everything, couldn't it? It could. 
it could definitely transform everything. And what we are seeing is a lot of very smart, intelligent people are looking into blockchain. Now, these people are, are the shakers and makers and history makers in the world and they're starting to make comments about blockchain technology and majority of it has been uh, fairly positive itself. Now, they could be spending their time on other innovative technologies like artificial intelligence or robotics, but most of them have actually um, uh, put in a, a, a focus on blockchain. And that means that we're starting to see an evolution towards uh, blockchain being adopted by entrepreneurs and corporate leaders when it was previously uh, uh, being known as an adoption point from uh, software developers and geeks and they call cypherpunks where you know all those who are behind a computer screen doing it but now we're having problem solvers and change makers looking into the blockchain industry and that's where all the excitement and, and buzz is coming from well of course you've got the banks australian banks are getting right into yes, it yes that's moment, right like the commonwealth bank has yes got, uh, terrific work going on at the moment yes. but I mean what are the sectors that you see taking to blockchain oh fantastic um, there are many other sectors uh, from a global landscape uh, besides financial services like what we've seen with Commonwealth Bank and ASX here as well is um, Air New Zealand had made an announcement to look into uh, blockchain and the airline industry um, for our neighbours there we've also seen a uh, Walmart you know, one of the largest uh, retailers in the US making a very positive statements on that. Uh, Musk, the shipping company, is working with IBM uh, from the shipping industry. And we're seeing a, a lot of pockets of industries that are clearly looking to it. And one of the uh, most, uh, I would say, disruptive in uh, areas of blockchain besides the uh, payments or the financial services industry is the supply chain industry as well. Uh, which, which cuts across uh, many other industries uh, within the supply chain space, from manufacturing to agriculture to um, even just even import and export of wine. There's a project on the NEM blockchain that's looking to that right now. So yeah. it could cut across all sectors? Literally, um, um, every other major industry uh, within um, the sphere where a blockchain technology platform is relevant. That being said, that I know there are a number of uh, evangelists out there that think that they've got a blockchain hammer trying to hit every nail uh, into this space. You know, blockchain isn't a problem finding a solution. Uh, it is still uh, something that needs to make business sense. And when I say business sense in a very uh, simplified manner, businesses need to see themselves making more money or saving more money. And if that makes business sense, then they would adopt blockchain. I do feel that there is some hype around it and everyone's trying to try to say that I'm using blockchain right now, but really ultimately boils down to the business sense. Uh, Leon? Mm -hmm. Now, what, what's interesting about your foundation here, the, the, your blockchain centre here, it's, it's a community centre in yep. a sense, isn't it? Yeah, that's so, right. So how does that work? So uh, um, actually NEM is, is a, a blockchain uh, non-profit organisation and we are community members of the blockchain centre. And the blockchain centre is one of the largest uh, blockchain communities in Australia with about 5,000 members. And NAM is part of this ecosystem altogether. And, and essentially being in the middle of where the community is also allows for a lot of um, opportunities to interact and work with different companies. And the way um, NAM Foundation has been structured is that we are really uh, grassroots and boots on the ground where we work with um, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and, and young businesses who want to adopt blockchain. Um, and, and that's where we are looking at a very community-focused approach. Yeah. So you would have a lot of startups coming in here? Plenty. I think the ratio of startups to uh, mid-sized to large-sized firms are almost you know, literally uh, 30, 40 to 1. So, so we're seeing a lot of that happening. And that's a strategy that, that we're doing because we are hopeful that one of them one day would make it big 
and, and they would be sort of a champion for uh, the usage of NAND blockchain as well. Right, right, which, which makes it a very focal space here for Australian startups. Yes, very much so. We are a huge supporter of the Australian startup ecosystem. In fact, uh, the Blockchain Centre recently made an announcement that they're moving into the uh, Victorian Innovation Hub here, uh, just in, in Melbourne CBD next to Southern Cross Station at the Goods Shed. And, and this would be with support of the Victorian government as well and, and part of a, a collective of um, co-working spaces and accelerators that support the growth of the startup ecosystem. Well, it's going to be very exciting to watch. And Jason Lee, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. It's a great to have an interview with you. And now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake. Saul Eslake, the last week's GDP figures showed Australia was tracking at 3.4%. It was uh, surprised the markets, but... It came at the, on the back of strong consumer spending and uh, falling household savings. What's your view about that? Well, that's right. Certainly the figures were stronger than expected, partly because of upward revisions to previously published estimates for earlier quarters, but also the growth in the June quarter itself of 0.9% was stronger than expected. So as the government has been keen to highlight, the 3.4% growth in the Australian economy over the year to the June quarter was the fastest since 2012 at the peak of the mining boom and faster than any of the seven largest industrialised economies. But there are some... I think, important qualifications to that figure, one of which you mentioned a moment ago about the reliance of household spending on declining saving. But there's a couple of other aspects that I'd like to mention before we turn to that in a bit more detail. The first is that of that 3.4% growth in real GDP over the year to the June quarter, 1.6 percentage points of it, that is almost half, was directly attributable to Australia's rapid rate of population growth. And when you take that out, Australia's per capita GDP growth rate over the year to the June quarter of only 1.8% was less than the US's 1.9% and the Eurozone's 2.2%. In fact, it wasn't that much higher than Japan's 1.2%, allowing for the fact that Japan's population has been declining not only over the past year, but over the past decade or more. So Australia's above average headline growth rate really does owe a lot to our rapid population growth, which is in turn, of course, driven by our very high immigration intake. And that's something which has started to decline and which the government is under considerable pressure from within its own ranks and from parties to the right of it to cut even further. And that raises one question over the sustainability of that growth. Another point which hasn't been widely noted by other commentators is that one percentage point of the 3.4% growth over the year to the June quarter came from a 10% increase in resources exports, which represents about 10% of the level of GDP. Or to put it differently, uh, one-tenth of the economy contributed almost a third of the growth in the economy, uh, that is resources exports. And that, of course, reflects the fact that although mining investment has been declining for more than five years, 
years since it peaked, projects have been gradually coming on stream and contributing to stronger growth in resources exports. What we're now seeing is the last of the five LNG plants that have been under construction over the last five years. Uh, these are the ones in Western Australia and the Northern Territory starting to come on stream and contributing to growth. Now, that contribution is going to tail off as work on those two final big resources projects is completed. And what has been an important source of overall GDP growth in recent years is not going to be contributing as much going forward. So there are those two initial qualifications I'd make to uh, the celebrations that have been had over the growth figures reported for the June quarter. And then finally, of course, we come to the point you made in the introduction there that uh, half of the growth in real GDP came from a 3% increase in household consumption spending over the year to the June quarter. Again, of course, some of that reflects the population growth that I've just been talking about. But what's striking is that Consumer spending grew by 3% in real terms over the last four quarters, whereas household disposable income grew in real terms by just 1.7 percentage points over the same, over the same period, 1.6%, uh, I should say, over the same period. And that really continues a pattern that's been in evidence over the past four years. Over the past four years, household consumption has risen at an annual rate of 2.8% per annum, whilst real household disposable income has grown at an annual rate of 1.2% per annum. How has that been possible? Well, because households have reduced their saving rate from a trend figure of 7.7% four years ago to 1.4% in the June quarter just ended, and that's the lowest figure since just before the global financial crisis started a decade ago this week. And that's obviously not sustainable. And households have been prepared to save a declining proportion of their income, while the value of their most important asset, their house, has been going up, as it has been since 2011. But property prices across Australia peaked about a year ago and are now declining. Most forecasters expect that they're going to continue to decline for some time yet to come. And I think this is going to make households much more cautious about saving a declining proportion of their income than they have been over the last four or five years. And that in turn means that unless we see a pickup in average income growth, of which there's very little sign to date, then consumer spending is going to slow. And it may well be, therefore, that the 3.4% overall economic growth that we recorded over the June quarter represents the high watermark for some years yet to come. So are you suggesting that in view of the uh, resources uh, tailoring off, in view of the uh, pressure on the government over immigration, and in view of uh, the pressures on households, uh, these GDP fingers are a once-off? Well, they're not a completely isolated event in the sense that we also had quite strong growth in the June quarter and we have had strong growth in employment, which is the main reason for the growth that there has been in real incomes. In fact, the national accounts show that 
average earnings per employed person actually declined slightly in real terms over the year to the June quarter. The only reason that household income grew at all was because of the significant growth in employment. A lot of that employment growth has been in areas such as health and aged care, the NDIS and so forth, if you like, in the so-called non-market sectors of the economy. It isn't really the result of stronger growth in corporate profits, although that's obviously been good for shareholders and has helped to support the share market. But uh, one of the other consequences of the very rapid growth in employment we've had is that Australia's productivity performance remains fairly poor, uh, as it does in many other advanced economies as well. And when productivity growth is poor, it's hard to see real income growth picking up. Uh, And even if it did, the experience of the last decade suggests that higher productivity growth on its own isn't necessarily going to lead to faster real wages growth. Uh, Real wages have risen by less than what productivity growth we've had uh, over the past decade, and that's the main reason for the declining share of national income that's going to workers over the past decade. But uh, you would say then, though, that uh, these uh, latest GDP figures are probably not sustainable for the long term? We can't expect further... Uh, increases of that sale? Well, I certainly don't think we'll see growth accelerate from the 3.4% recorded over the year to the June quarter, and it's more likely that growth will slow to between two and three quarters and 3%, all else being equal over the year ahead. Now, that would still be broadly in line with the Reserve Bank's published forecasts, and depending on where that growth comes from, it should still be consistent with some further gradual decline in the unemployment rate, which is still above where the Reserve Bank wants it to be. And until unemployment declines to less than 5% and underemployment comes down from its still very high levels, then it's unrealistic, I think, to expect any meaningful pickup in wages growth. Indeed, the experience of other countries, which have now had lower unemployment for longer periods than we have, suggests that you really do need to have unemployment much lower than the conventionally defined levels of full employment for longer than you needed to in previous cycles before wages growth does start to pick up. We're only just beginning to see convincing signs of a pickup in wages growth in the United States now, even though the unemployment rate there has been below 5% for getting on for three years. Um, And there's not much sign in other countries where unemployment is historically low, such as in Germany or the UK or Japan or even in New Zealand, that below average unemployment in those countries is quickly leading to a pickup in wages growth. So we certainly shouldn't expect that to occur quickly in Australia, given that unemployment is still above our traditional definition of the full employment level. And without a pickup in wages growth, it's difficult to see how overall economic growth can be sustained at the 3.4% we've had over the past four quarters. Well, so Leslie, it's always informative speaking to you. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me again. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, 
Donald Trump has doubled down on his widening trade war, threatening tariffs on effectively every item China exports to the US. Just weeks out from midterm elections, the polls indicate would leave him facing a hostile Congress. The dramatic move has royal jittery financial markets. The president's move implies there'd be imposts on more than a fifth of imports into the US. China has promised to retaliate. The White House is understood to be finalising duties on US $200 billion worth of goods, potentially in coming days. That would add to US $50 billion in measures already in place. President Trump added to the sense of growing turmoil at an impromptu session with reporters on Air Force One on Friday, where he said he was ready to pull the trigger on those tariffs very soon, depending on what happens, he said. While economists see the immediate impact of trade tensions as limited, the effect on economic confidence may be larger. Now, trade data for August, released on Saturday, echoed both the cause and effect of a standoff with the US. The surplus with the US rose to a record, while overall export growth slowed. A lone bright spot may be faster than expected import growth, signalling that domestic demand in the world's second largest economy is holding up for now. And the latest NAB business survey showed operating conditions in Australia rebounded in August. However, the outlook among Australian companies is becoming increasingly pessimistic. The measure for business conditions rose by three points to a reading of 15 after falling the previous month. But business confidence fell by three points to four, leaving the measure at its lowest reading since August 2016. Its lowest reading in two years. And Japanese brewer Kirin appears to be finally losing patience with its $2 billion Australian dairy business, Lion Dairy and Drinks. Lion, which is 100% owned by Kirin, has launched a strategic review of dairy and drinks and is considering options including selling the business entirely after completing a three-year restructuring process. Lion Dairy and Drinks is Australia's second largest milk producer after Murray Goldburn, with an estimated 19% share of the milk processing market, and it buys close to 1 billion litres of milk a year, according to Ibis World. It owns category-leading brands such as King Island and South Cape Cheese, Dairy Farmers and Pura Milk, Yoplait and Farmers Union Yogurt, Big M and Dare Flavoured Milk and Berry Fruit Juice. However, Sales and earnings have been in decline for years as the business struggled to recoup rising costs amid stiff competition from other processes and pricing pressure from Coles and Woolworths, including $1 a litre milk. Kirin paid $2.8 billion for then National Foods in 2007 and $910 million for New South Wales-based cooperative dairy farmers in 2008, but it struggled to achieve a satisfactory return on its investment. The Japanese brewer has written down the value of Lion Dairy and Drinks by $2.14 billion since 2010. And the nation's biggest department store, Meyer, has fallen to a full-year loss of almost half a billion dollars after the department store failed from a continued fall in sales and was forced to write down the value of its assets. It's Meyer's first loss since floating on the ASX in 2009. The company reported a statutory net loss after tax of $486 million for the 2018 financial year, compared to an $11.9 million profit a year before. The result was driven by significant costs of $541 million, including a $515 million write-down to the value of Myers Goodwill and brand name. And Woolworths is facing a potential $100 million class action launched on behalf of investors whose shares lost value following a shocked 2015 profit downgrade by the supermarket giant. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Class action. Brought by lawyers Morris Blackburn, alleges Woolworths breach continued disclosure obligations and engaged in misleading conduct by giving profit guidance that couldn't be met. And up to 5 million Australians could get up thousands of dollars back from the big banks and what is set to be the largest class action in the nation's history. Law firm Slater & Gordon has launched an unprecedented wave of legal action on behalf of around one in three Australian workers believed to have had their super invested as cash with the banks. It's estimated that the landmark lawsuits could get some account holders as much as $3,000 back and end up costing the banks more than $1 billion. About 55% of superannuation policies, or $8.2 million, have at least one retail account, and it's believed that almost all of these would have some cash component. This comes after a Productivity Commission report earlier this year raised serious concerns about the $2.6 trillion unlucky lottery, as it called it, with young people and workers on low incomes particularly vulnerable. The Productivity Commission said the super system's two fundamental flaws were members accumulating unintended multiple counts, leading to billions of dollars each year in unnecessary fees and insurance premiums, and entrenched underperformance by some default super funds. Slater and Gordon's lawsuits, which even with the conservative 5 million sign-ups, would dwarf the 150,000 involved in the class action against bank fees, and the 10,000 for the Black Saturday bushfires stem from evidence uncovered by the Financial Services Royal Commission. The first lawsuit will be against and combat owned Colonial First State and AMP, with up to 18 further class actions expected to snowball against bank-owned and retail funds. An issue is the fact that bank-owned super funds have been busted, putting members' money into the parent bank instead of the bank that offers the best interest rates, meaning workers are often paid between 0.5 and 1% less interest than they should be. The firm estimates that for some $100,000 in cash, just a 0.5% difference could have cost them between $3,000 in only six years. And the country's largest insurers have admitted to a list of misconduct and conduct falling below community standards. At the opening submission of Round 6 of the Banking Royal Commission, the country's biggest insurers preempted the Commission's attack by admitting to list after list of misconduct ranging from delays in claims handling to misleading advertising to systemic administrative errors. There was freedom insurance, using aggressive, outbound coal-calling sales tactics to sell accidental death policies, including to a young man with Down syndromes. There was Allianz, admitting that one of its subsidiaries had failed to respond to 6,000 claims within 10 days, as required by industry regulations. There was AMP, 
admitting some of its authorised representatives churned clients from life insurance policy to another so they could collect commissions. Clearview admitted to a number of instances of mis-selling of insurance by its sales agents and said that it could not be sure that more than 278,000 calls to customers didn't breach the anti-hawking obligations under the Corporations Act. Commonwealth Bank admitted it had been caught out with outdated medical definitions for conditions such as heart attack and rheumatoid arthritis under its trauma policies. Industry giant IAG identified 112 examples of misconduct, including some systemic issues relating to sales process and handling of claims. It was still finding problems in one of its subsidiaries called Swan Insurance as recently as September the 7th, when it told the Commission it had identified further problems in the way add-on insurance for cars was sold. MetLife reported the Commission that its conduct might have fallen below community standards around its claims handling processes for mental health conditions, including, incredibly, that it put some claimants under surveillance. MLC, the insurance business in which NAB sold an 80% stake to Japanese giant Nippon Like in 2016, admitted that there had been 245 legal proceedings brought against it across Australia, half of which related to claims for total permanent disability. In addition, there have been 1,890 complaints brought against it with a financial ombudsman service and 460 in the Superannuation Complaints Tribunal. And Waratah Coal Chairman Clive Palmer has launched a proposal to create a new 700-megawatt coal-fired power station in the Galilee Basin in Queensland in association with his company's Galilee Coal Project. Construction of the $1.54 billion project will commence in 2020, he said, to support the in-development Galilee Coal Project located 30 kilometres north of Alpha. The plant is intended to provide power for the mine's operations, which focus on export coal for shipping via Gladstone, as well as power needs for the company's proposed Greenfield North Galilee Coal Mine, which is still in an early stage of planning. However, the legal battle to force Clive Palmer to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in debt could drag on for years to come. It's two years and eight months since the Tycoon's nickel refinery in Townsville was placed into administration and then liquidation. More than 150 third-party creditors left out of pocket by the Yabaloo refinery's collapse are still waiting to get their money their road. In the meantime, the 64-year-old has claimed his position as Queensland's richest person with an estimated wealth approaching $3 billion. He's also announced plans to re-enter politics with his United Australia Party, headquartered in Townsville, and has erected billboards around the state featuring photographs of himself and slogans like Put Australia First and Make Australia Great. And NAB has heeded Prime Minister Scott Morrison's warning of an angry Aussie public, announcing it will not follow the rest of the Big Four in jacking up rates to rebuild trust with customers. The bank was widely expected to hike interest rates after Westpac, ANZ and Combank all slugged borrowers with hundreds of dollars a year in extra interest payments, blaming higher wholesale funding costs. The surprise move means NAB's standard variable home rate will remain at 5.24% for now. We're listening and acting differently, NAB Chief Executive Andrew Thorburn said in a statement. Mr Thorburn did not rule out rate hikes in the future, saying NAB would continue to regularly review its rates and assess market conditions, including funding costs. And that's it for this week. And next week, I have a terrific interview with Dominic Walsh, the CEO of design firm Cowan Australia. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at Talking Biz or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 